Welcome to another episode of iBuzz, the animal care and welfare podcast by Animal Concepts and the Practical Animal Welfare Science, the Pause platform. I'm your host, Sabrina Brando, and today I am delighted to welcome James Gesualdi, who is an animal welfare attorney and the author of Excellence Beyond Compliance, Enhancing Animal Welfare Through the Constructive Use of the Animal Welfare Act. Welcome, James. Thank you, Sabrina. I am just as delighted to be with you today. Wonderful. Very much looking forward to this podcast with you. You have been serving the animal community for many decades, and we actually got to know each other when I was working around marine mammal welfare and care, and, and so were you. And uh, But a lot of people might not know you, so it would be really great if we could start with a short introduction to yourself, please. Sure. I, I've been working on animal law issues since 1989. At that point, I was a burnt-out young lawyer at a big global law firm, and I was very grateful for that. Um, but it was wearing me down, and eventually I got to spend a week with dolphins and cancer patients and cancer survivors, and it was a transformative experience for me. Uh, everyone else in the group was a woman, and they were dealing with their own mortality with strength, courage, and dignity, and that really humbled me and gave me a newfound perspective on my work and my so-called stresses. And I met and fell in love with uh, a dolphin by the name of Little Bit, who was the last surviving flipper from the original television series in the 1960s. And she inspired me to find ways to do things with and on behalf of animals. Uh, that, that was the beginning of the last almost 32 years of service on behalf of animals. And interestingly, at least for me, uh, after that experience that, that changed my life, and I had no idea how much it would change my life over the years, I returned home and started reading and studying the animal rights literature so that I could understand why people might have a different view of this experience that just changed my life for the better and started me on this path of, of service on behalf of animals. And throughout the years, I've been very fortunate to meet lots of wonderful animals and great people who have continued to inspire and assist and guide me. And those individuals, human and non-human, 
um, have impacted my work and have driven me to find new and innovative ways to help, as I like to say, make a difference for animals and people. And that's, that's, that's it in a nutshell. And I've uh, spent a lot of my career in the marine mammal and zoological worlds, and also a lot of my professional efforts within uh, bar associations and uh, other contexts working with and teaching people animal law. Thanks very much. It, I think it's so interesting also because, you know, for me at the time, even though I was obviously aware of, you know, regulatory, you know, guidelines and all kinds of legal frameworks around the care for animals or animal welfare acts, I hadn't actually met anybody who was working in that field actively. And I think a lot of people, when they think about attorneys, they might not necessarily think about that this is actually a job that you could be doing. And perhaps you could talk a little bit more to that because you probably didn't study initially to, like you mentioned, you know, you're, you had an experience meeting a little bit and, and all that, but maybe you could talk a little bit about, you know, how you came to study, uh, you know, to become an attorney and then also, you know, in what ways could people be working as an attorney for animals? Absolutely, Sabrina. I, I had, uh, for a long time, wanted to be an attorney, uh, in part seeing that as a path to greater government service and perhaps even politics. And when I was in law school in the 80s, uh, in my law school at Hofstra University, and in almost all law schools, animal law in and of itself was not taught and probably had not yet really been conceptualized as a distinct field within the practice of law. Within the last decade or so, here in the United States and, and across the world, it's been uh, one of the more rapidly growing areas of legal practice. And in part, that's because of the passion and the intelligence of lots of people involved in the field and uh, pent up desire of all of us to, to, to do good, to do the right thing. And uh, so when I had that experience and started to do this work at first pro bono and, and reduced fee, and then continued over the years, I was teaching myself just about everything um, as, as I went along. And um, again, that's a wonderful thing about being an attorney but frankly, being and doing anything and any work with animals, it's always available to us to find new ways to do things, to interact with others and animals and, and to help animals and each other. And one need not be a lawyer who practices black letter law some of these things i like to say are really more dependent on on spiritual laws that uh, govern all of us equally at all times 
Thanks. I was also wondering, you know, I'm not a native English speaker and would, you know, just maybe others are wondering this too, are lawyers and attorneys the same um, or are they, are these actually distinct professions? Just kind of to get a little bit more background in, you know, what um, the word yeah, means. Yeah. Law lawyers and attorneys, at, at least here in the U.S., those two terms are used interchangeably. One is licensed to practice law, and then one works as an attorney or, or a lawyer. Um, and there are different roles that lawyers play, and I've, I've done different things in addition to animal law th uh, throughout my career, although my practice has been exclusively animal law for the last 15, 16 years. Um, and my work is regulatory work, primarily these days do, dealing with the United States Department of Agriculture, which uh, administers, implements, administers, and enforces the U.S. Animal Welfare Act. Uh, I have worked with other agencies on other laws in the past and still might do that occasionally. Uh, but that's my primary focus. Uh, as an adjunct to that, um, one thing that I've spent a lot of time on the last decade or more is responding to crises um, when some unfortunate event incident happens. Um, in the zoological world, whether involving animals and people or just animals, um, uh, not that there's anything mere about, about animals, but the, uh, the organization or a number of organizations over the years have reached out to me to help them in dealing with that. And my approach is rather unique. And as such, there are folks that, you know, might prefer to work with someone whose approach is more aligned with their situation or with their objectives. And basically, the way through a crisis is to understand as best we can why it arose to begin with, and to find means not only to remedy it and prevent it from happening again, and, and hopefully sharing those lessons with people elsewhere, but getting things to a better place for the animals, the staff, the public, uh, for everyone. And that last piece of getting to a better place, that so-called extra mile of effort, is really important because these unfortunate events and incidents or, or, or serious challenges can be like everything in life can be transformed so that even though we can't rewind the clock and undo them, 
we can make sure that we learn and grow and and make this step by step little by little a, a better world for animals and people so you mentioned the you know the regulatory work that you're doing and specifically also to farm animals perhaps can you talk to us a little bit more about you know your work that is concentrating on these legal and strategic matters both for you know farm animals or companion animals or others if you're talking uh, about them or wildlife conservation yeah. and its relation to the U.S. Animal Welfare Act? Well, the, the U.S. Animal Welfare Act basically covers mammals and, and birds, so there are no specific standards for birds in place yet. The agency is, is developing them right now. Um, Farm animals, unless they're exhibited in certain contexts, are not covered. So my work is concentrated on wildlife and, and wildlife issues. In terms of companion animals and farm animals, uh, I've done a considerable amount of work through uh, various bar associations. And for the nearly decade that I taught or co-taught animal law at Hofstra University School of Law and learned a considerable amount from my law students and their, uh, their scholarly research. And the, the challenges facing all non-human animal life have uh, a common thread, whether it be companion animals who perhaps uh, in most cases uh, live, in, in the vast majority of cases, live uh, good lives as members of our family. There are some exceptions uh, to that. And there are animal cruelty and other laws to, to help address that. Um, and farm animals here in the United States, there are very limited federal and state specific standards governing, uh, their care. Um, and, uh, wildlife, you have protections depending on the species, uh, from the Animal Welfare Act, if they're used for exhibition, uh, research, uh, commercial breeding, or in certain transport uh, contexts. And yeah, so just going back on the Animal Welfare Act, uh, the, the uh, Animal Welfare Act in terms of mammals covers those regulated species if they're in exhibition research, commercial breeding, uh, or in some transport contexts. So there also are laws like the Endangered Species Act here in the United States, the Marine Mammal Protection Act, um, and other uh, narrower acts that may provide 
uh, protection for groups of species or particular species, as well as, as state laws. Um, and of course, there are different things that may apply to animals in the wild. Now, the Marine Mammal Protection Act has provisions that apply to marine mammals in the wild, as well as marine mammals in um, zoological settings. So you mentioned, the, obviously, and this is really interesting also to learn, and this is why, again, it's so important we all collaborate and we also learn from each other, you know, which not only what is in animal welfare acts or in other documents and in other regulations, but also who is covered and who is not, and what does that mean for those animals when we want to make a change for them. And you mentioned, of course, marine mammals. And while you work for on behalf of many animals and with many different people, you mentioned marine mammals also specifically. So perhaps you could talk a little bit to a working group on the reintroduction of marine mammals uh, in the wild. Yeah, that was a, an, an interesting volunteer effort in the mid 90s um, where the marine mammal community convened a bunch of experts to explore doing experimental releases, returns, or reintroductions uh, uh, to the wild, uh, in part as a conservation measure. And it was a really good group of people. I learned a great deal. Um, I wrote a voluminous uh, white paper on release, return, and reintroduction of marine mammals to the wild that uh, was, uh, at, the, at that time, a, a pretty comprehensive survey of the, of the legal and policy issues uh, that were involved. And I, I thought it was a, a great exercise in forward thinking, and I, I wish we had continued to explore that. Um, but that was, you know, that was that was one of the earlier formative experiences in my career, whereby being enthusiastic, energetic, and and volunteering to help, and then finding ways to do the um, to do the work. That's that's how you that's how you create a a career or a life of, of service, whether it's in the law, animal caregiving, education, whatever it may be, doing the work. And you have done a lot of uh, different work. And one of the, the aspects that, you know, we briefly discussed in another, you know, conversation that we had was about you know, the rulemaking and updates to marine mammal mm. regulations. And could you elaborate a little bit on that, please? Yes, that, that's, a, that's a, a great thing to bring up, Sabrina. In, in the mid-1990s, the uh, United States Department of Agriculture, again, uh, tasked with administering the Animal Welfare Act, convened what is called a negotiated rulemaking in order to update the marine mammal regulations, which at that point were 15 uh, 
10, 10 to 15 years old. And the negotiated rulemaking was an exercise in consensus building in that all the stakeholders were represented around the table. And whether they be zoological organizations maintaining and caring for marine mammals, um, animal protection organizations or other forms of animal protection organizations um, and other agencies all had to come together and agree and develop these new regulations. Uh, so after the process ended and uh, funding ran out, uh, a few years later, 60 or so percent of the marine mammal regulations in the U.S. were updated uh, without any litigation and in a much shorter period of time than it would have taken by what would be called a conventional notice and comment rulemaking here in the United States, where the agency puts out a proposed rule, there are lots of comments, and then eventually there's a final rule litigation might ensue, and eventually it would be implemented. Um, so that, that was a, a key, I think, turning point in my work because it showed the power of bringing people together and trying to make things better for animals. And um, for, since then, for the last uh, 25 years, 20, 25 years, um, I have been a tireless advocate for reconvening a negotiated rulemaking to build consensus around fully updated uh, standards of care for marine mammals in the United States. I think it would be a Herculean effort, but it would be one that would bring people together and result in changes that would benefit marine mammals. And that to me is worthwhile. Yes, absolutely. Could you elaborate a little bit more on, you know, some of the thoughts you have about this or where do you see, you know, the needs, you know, specifically or maybe some examples for us not necessarily that, you know, it's not necessarily a sphere we're so uh, used to or comfortable with yet? Yeah, I, I think that a lot of things have changed over the years in terms of our understanding, let's say, of marine mammals, by example. Um, and there are different standards throughout the world. Um, we have more information on what's worked or how it might work or, or what, what things might, might benefit them. So I think, I, I think there's a lot that can be brought to the table to take a look at the specific regulations, even including some that were were updated in the mid '90s. I mean, that's <laughs> that's twenty. That's a quarter of a century ago, and uh, the other the other regulations are even older than that. Now, being old, and I have this appreciation because of the years that I've been fortunate to live on this planet. Being older does not necessarily mean a regulation is um, inadequate, but it certainly suggest that you should at least revisit it. And I think that would be helpful. Um, I also think that 
the the regulatory world and the the law is a good starting point and oftentimes we get caught up in the fact that many of us view the law as the end point and in the year 2021 whether you're in Europe, Asia, Africa, South America, North America, wherever you happen to be, with, with maybe rare exceptions, most societies look for higher standards of care than what the law might provide. And it's something that means we are not limited to the law in terms of our creativity or our efforts on behalf of animals. And I think my work has tried to leverage the law, build upon the good that, that comes where there are communities, zoological or others, where there are uh, accrediting bodies and standards that those bodies have that may help animals as well and go further and that was really the foundation upon which excellence beyond compliance was built yes absolutely we're going to talk a lot more about your book uh, in a few minutes but before we move to your book and and other really exciting developments from that can you talk about your work on the Young Lawyers Divisions of Animal Protection Committee? Yeah, that was um, the first uh, American Bar Association, which is our uh, National Voluntary Lawyers Association uh, here in the U.S., although there are members from across the world and it's got over, I think, 300,000 members. And the... Uh, ABA, Young Lawyers Division, and Animal Protection Committee, uh, which dates back to maybe even the late 80s. I joined it sometime in the early uh, 90s, and that was the first of a number of bar association committees that I've been involved with and held leadership roles in. Um, over the years, that, uh, that, that committee uh, uh, sort of uh, faded out. And in the early 2000s, I was one of the uh, founding members appointed to the uh, New York State Bar. Uh, at that point, it was Special Committee on Animals and the Law. Now it's a, a full standing committee on animals and the law. And that was, I think, in 2002 or 2003, uh, which I went on to uh chair for several years i uh, still remain on the committee um there is the uh on a local level a local county bar association here on long island where i helped uh, co-create an animal law committee and then the american bar association tort trial and insurance practice section animal law committee which has been a, a powerhouse of activity on behalf of animals uh, and your listeners might be most interested 
Uh, that committee with the international sections, International Animal Law Committee, uh, recently succeeded in getting the ABA to adopt a resolution in February of this year calling for an international convention for animal protection in order to protect animal well-being, the public health, and, and the environment. And that's, that's very significant. I think that's a, a breakthrough resolution. And I would suggest that you uh, look for that on the American Bar Association website. And that would be the Animal Protection Convention uh, resolution from, I believe it was February of 2021. We'll make sure to add that to this podcast. As people are listening, I'm sure they will be very interested to follow up on some of the links and some of the work that either you or others have been involved in. So we'll definitely put a link to that development. And and I think, you know, it's so important also to, you've been writing uh, columns for the San Diego Zoo Global Academy. You've been, you know, at conferences, you're speaking at all kinds of different conferences, you know, where animal care, professionals, trainers, curators, directors, everybody comes together to also, you know, really, you know, serve, but also teach us more about animal law, animal protection, because of course, just like any other, you know, profession or expertise, it's a different language we have to get used to. And also, you know, this differentiation that you made from, it's not necessarily, you know, something that at the end but really it starts with and how can it help animals and of course the protection of people and and of course this beautiful planet that we share so and i think that's really valuable so i'm really glad you're you're on this podcast today and hopefully not the last one and you know other work that you're doing um revolves around the tort trial and insurance practice section of animal law committee can you tell us more about that please yeah, I, I, that that committee, which I just referenced, was one of the uh, driving forces behind the uh, resolution that came out of the uh, international law sections, International Animal Law Committee, is a, a great group of people. And I I may have differences of uh, perspective with with some on some issues, but uh, generally, we've worked well together to try and find ways to uh, move the law to advance animal interest, protection, and well-being. And being involved in organizations like that, in this conversation, Sabrina, we're talking about bar associations because I'm an attorney. But getting involved in one's professional organizations or associations, whatever the field of endeavor, is just a really good way to meet people, to develop yourself as a professional and as as a person. And that has certainly been the case in my experience. You mentioned that I've, I've been out at a number of conferences and, and, and I've enjoyed lots of opportunities to, to speak or, or present uh, thoughts. And 
I've really loved those experiences. And it used to be 25 years ago, you might think about that. Oh, this is a great way to, to get the word out about the work that I'm doing and, and to help build my, my practice and, and my career as, as I try to serve animals and the people, uh, as you put it, who, who care for them. And, and that's true. But I think you've probably seen this in, in your extensive work around the world. What's really exciting about that is what you learn. And I try to approach every presentation as something that gives me an opportunity to learn some new things so I can share some new ideas and test them out and then get feedback and learn from other people's experiences to make those ideas that I've generated either more useful and more effective or put them to the side because now they're not going to work. And, and, and that's, you know, there's just so much that's good and fun about that. And um, certainly you can do that over zoom and remotely. Uh, but there, there's a lot to be said for being in person. And certainly, I think we've come to appreciate that more over the last year. Yes, absolutely. So you and I are recording this podcast June 1st, 2021, amidst pandemic. And yeah, we're so grateful for Zoom. But to be honest, you know, I can't wait to for us to meet again in person. It's been many, many years. And of course, for everybody to connect again but uh and as you said it's so important to you know come with this kind of kind curiosity to feedback that we receive on presentations or writing that we do or services we provide to you know as you say make it better or say well maybe this is not going to work or just set it aside right not necessarily throwing it out but saying okay maybe this is not working here and then suddenly we might find ourselves in a different country or in a different scenario and suddenly we go oh wait a second maybe now this is you know an opportunity for us to use this or not so but there's always so much to learn from each other and one of my favorite sayings is to be I want to be a forever student so mm-hmm. as you are connecting and and serving and you know in a sort of educational research role at the same time you also have to remind yourself to uh, always be a forever student at least that's how I go mm-hmm. And so for me, you know, um, I'm excited to talk to you about your book because your book, uh, Excellence Beyond Compliance, was, you know, I've read it many years ago and I always talk to people about this book and I'm really delighted that you are working on on an update. And um, because it's such a, you know, you talked about, you know, the extra mile and really, you know, like the title says, Excellence Beyond uh, Compliance. So how can we do, you know, what the animals deserve and uh, and doing more than what we are asked to do. So tell us more about your book and um, and we'll definitely put, you know, a link to that uh, with this podcast as well. Thanks. Thanks, Sabrina. Uh, the, the, the book was a, a labor of love. It took a long time and probably longer than it should have, but the my practice was so busy those years that, it uh, it it wasn't the priority. I had other things that were more pressing. 
But the book really is an outgrowth of dealing with all of these challenges or all of these after the fact challenges. And over the years, I, I saw patterns and developed lots of ways to make things better, which they always have to be organization and culture specific to be effective. And the, uh, the, so the book tried to take those experiences and using the U.S. Animal Welfare Act as uh, the center of it, although most of the principles in the book, like you've noted, Sabrina, in terms of going the extra mile, are principles or good practices that could be employed anywhere. It, it need not uh, be the Animal Welfare Act here in the U.S. that you're dealing with. It could be another law or regulation, or it could be the complete absence of law or regulation. So you, you put aside those U.S. Animal Welfare Act-specific uh, portions of the book, and you look at some of the big picture things. And what the book tries to do is address all of the challenges and questions that pertain to how we care for and what we do with animals. And it asks a question on the back of the book that, that I've updated, but I'll, I'll go with the, the original question on the back of the book is, what can we, meaning you, Sabrina, Brando, me, James Giswaldi, and, and you who are listening right now, what can we individually and collectively what can we do today? Now, the only time in which we ever have to act to improve the well-being of animals. It's a very constructive question. And the question sets the stage for the entire book to provide this constructive framework and philosophy of excellence beyond compliance. Now, today, when I pose that question, I, I've updated a little bit to what can we, again, that's all of us and each of us, do today to advance animal interests, protection, and well-being. So it's a little bit broader, um, but it's no less constructive and no less powerful. Yes, and that is such an important point because, you know, that's that question. What is it that you can do today? And as, you know, animal welfare, just like our own well-being, is really, you know, about today, not necessarily about the idea of maybe building, you know, a new enclosure in 10 years from now or waiting for a grant to come through or waiting for legislation to be in place. But what is it that we can do now with the opportunities, the resources, the time that we have so we can make changes for animals? And um, yeah, I think, you know, we often, at least when I say we with animal concepts, we, we really like this, this sentence that I actually 
you know, was, I guess, given by, you know, wonderful organizers of an animal welfare conference in Romania in 2016. And their, their slogan was, have you enriched a life today? And it's one of my, my favorite uh, sentences to, um, to kind of also give to people, like, can you ask that question, right, uh, on a daily basis? Like, are, how are we making things better for animals now or for, you know, the public or whatever uh, is your particular job? So, and I really, really like that message that resonates off the pages of your book is that that opportunity that we all have and um, we don't have to wait for for anybody because we are that somebody right so that famous slogan that is out there we are somebody that can make that change and you know and i'm really glad i don't know when the next version of your book is coming out but we're certainly going to stay in contact and and you know spread the word when it does and in the meantime you know make sure to pick up a copy somewhere and read what uh, was written so long ago, but still very valuable. And, you know, you're, you've actually gotten an award, you know, you have received the Excellence in Advancements of Animal Law Leadership Award. And can you talk a little bit uh, to that? Wow, uh, thanks, thanks, Sabrina. That, um, that was really a, a great honor to receive that recognition from the American Bar Association for my work on behalf of animals. And I think that was the result of the efforts of a lot of people who have helped me, people that have worked with me across different perspectives and I'm, I'm very grateful for that. Um, but most importantly, I'm, I'm grateful that there are meaningful ways that I've been able to be of service to animals and to people. So when somebody gets an award, what are some of the criteria? What are some of the things, you know, that they're looking for before they are awarding uh, such an award specifically? That's a, that's a good question, Sabrina. I, I, I think it's, it's service through the ABA, through the, the ABA uh, committee um, that has made a difference for animals, that's impacted the law to make a difference for animals. And I'm very proud and, again, very grateful that I've had the opportunity over the years to work in some outstanding bar associations. And one of the things that I have enjoyed the most has been all the mentoring of young lawyers and other young professionals that I've been able to contribute. And it's ironic and sometimes the term reverse mentoring is used and mentoring is really a two-way street and in helping another person one can't help but help themselves and i have learned probably considerably more from working with each one of the people that i've mentored 
than I have probably imparted to any or all of them. <laughs> um, and I would encourage your listeners, depending on where you are in your life and career, it's, it's never too late to have mentors. I've had some great mentors, um, even in recent years. And, and I've had some great mentees who I just consider professional colleagues. And it's a great joy to watch them as they move along in their, in their uh, journey. Absolutely. Yeah, that's, you know, it, this resonates uh, absolutely with me. I have also some mentors and, you know, mentees, and it's just wonderful. And yeah, it's, uh, and mentoring, of course, it's not only, you know, the forever student, the learning, but also lots of other, you know, connections in the social sphere, in, in spiritual sphere or others, right? This, there's so many ways that we can be connected and mentored or mentor others. So that's just really, really important. And, you know, earlier I mentioned that you uh, write a monthly column or at least regularly a column for San Diego Zoo Global Academy. Uh, we also, when I was still with Waza, we wrote um, a brief joint blog, if you like. So perhaps you can talk a little bit about your column writing and, and perhaps also the first time I met you, I remember you were, you started with a beautiful quote and then you gave us all um, a little book and uh, to read like with some beautiful, you know, prose. And so you're very, you know, you're obviously in your work, extremely serious and eloquent in, in the language that is revolving around law, but you also are very much, you know, writing in different ways and looking at other writers um to you know take inspiration from so perhaps you can share some of that thanks sabrina there there's no end to the sources of inspiration that we can find and we can share with this world and certainly you and your work have been a great inspiration and your mentoring uh, which continues to this day, has also, I think, had a discernible impact on animal caregivers throughout the world. And I know even during the height of the pandemic that you were out there doing things, sharing things, trying to help people remain uh, focused, positive, and, and moving forward. And so I, I thank you very much for that. And I also thank you you for remembering years back when we first met um that that's that's always uh exciting and and a, and a lot of fun um the the column for the san diego zoo global academy now i guess it's the san diego zoo wildlife alliance academy has been an extension of the book and over the last six and a half years that i've been writing the the column it is the home of all of my latest and best thinking. And I would encourage people to uh, go to the Academy website and look up the newsletters. I took about four or five months off uh, this year, uh, but most years since 2015, uh, when I started in April, um, most years I've, I've written 10 or 11, sometimes 12 columns in a year. And I think the column has helped me find and refine my voice 
And uh, it's something that is uh, a lot of work, but the end product is always worth the effort. And, and I think the column has also helped me distill the universality of a lot of the ideas that I share and a lot of the, the, the principles in the book. And for instance, there are uh, certain positions that organizations should have, like an animal welfare officer. There are good practices that everyone can engage in on a regular or a daily basis, need not have the U.S. Animal Welfare Act. The going the extra mile, doing more than is required. The philosophy of Kaizen or continuous improvement. Um, these, these are some of the, the universal uh, tools that are in the book and in the approach. You know, learning, learning from and growing through adversity, um, transforming challenges into opportunities. And, and these are things that I write upon uh, in, the, in the column. And Sabrina, would it be possible for me to share something from a column? Absolutely, that would be wonderful, thank you. Yeah, yeah, one of the, um, one of the columns that I'm, I'm particularly proud of is one that is called an enlightened caregiver's creed. And this came out of a series of conversations with a, a client dealing with some adversity and trying to meet with some people who had different perspectives. And um, so I wrote this, it's, it's called the enlightened caregiver's creed. And it's, it's not too long, so I'll just, I'll, I'll quickly go through it. We appreciate and understand that people are concerned about the well-being of animals, whether in our care, in the wild, in other settings, and or in our homes. We share that concern and constructively act upon it every day. We are humbled and grateful for the opportunity to ded dedicate ourselves to the well-being of the animals in our loving care. While respectful of differences, the one difference we focus on daily is the positive difference we can make in the lives of animals here and everywhere. We thoughtfully consider any responsible concern and constantly review ongoing developments here and throughout the world so as to continuously improve our service on behalf of animals, we put proactive thinking into good practices as we change and innovate in ways that incorporate the best interest of the animals. And that is the Enlightened Caregiver's Creed. That is just beautiful. And it's actually, you know, we've come through so many different aspects of your work over many decades. And I often ask the podcast is if they would be willing to share a story uh, of an animal or perhaps a story like you have ju just done, which is absolutely fabulous at the end uh, of this podcast. But of course, 
you know, I could imagine that perhaps there's an animal story that you would like to share that is also a possibility. So I don't know, James, is there another animal story you want to, to share before we end this podcast or shall we end on this beautiful story you just said? Well, I would like to note the um, continuing contributions of our late uh, black Labrador retriever, uh, Memphis Grace, who was really my third daughter. Um, she taught me more about animal welfare and well-being and human well-being and how to interact with others than anyone. And uh, she continues to inspire me. And although my daily walks are now conducted without her, um, she's with me always. And uh, I think if, if, not, if not for her presence in my life, I, I, I don't know the one that I would still be here or, or two that I... I would have been uh, anywhere near as effective. That's beautiful. Thank you so much. That's a really, really beautiful story. And what a beautiful name she had. And thank you for, you know, the, the visual that came to me when you were describing how you are still doing walks, even though she's no longer there. That's, that's a beautiful way of seeing how deep your connection was with her. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. So thank you so much, James, for coming onto this podcast, sharing a lot of your love and dedication to animals of all kinds, to your work as an attorney, through your work in rulemaking, through your work in mentoring and you know, learning and connecting with so many people and animals uh, around the world. So thank you again so much for coming on to this podcast, James. Oh, it's been a pleasure, Sabrina. Thank you. Thank you for your good work on behalf of animals and how much you do to help people that are helping animals. So this was the end of another really wonderful and beautiful described podcast as well by James Justwaldi. And you know, we know that well-being for you and your animals is too important not to get right. And at Animal Concepts, we help you care for animals and for yourself to be at your best to achieve excellence in animal care and welfare. And PAUSE is the first online platform combining human and animal well-being science and practice where you can get the education and tools you need so you and your animals can flourish. So follow the link in the podcast description today if you want to become a member. Thank you very much and till next time.